Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter. In this audio, I am going to cover all of Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. I will entitle this section, this chapter, Jesus' New Covenant is Superior to Moses' Old Covenant. Our context is this, in all of chapter 7, and before that even, Jesus is compared to Bekizeldek, and in making that comparison, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is much superior as a high priest than Aaron was as a high priest, and so the priest of the two covenants, one is superior to the other, and that leads logically right on to the next idea in chapter 8, that the Jesus' covenant itself, the new covenant, of which he is the high priest, since he's a better high priest, his covenant is also superior to the old covenant of which Aaron was the high priest. So, Jesus' new covenant is superior to Moses' old covenant. This is New Covenant Theologians, one of their favorite chapters. We start with Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The main point. This is the main point of what is being said. What's the main point? Well, the main point of chapter 7, which is this. We have a high priest who is in heaven ministering in the true tabernacle and who has a more excellent ministry than that of the Levites. That's the main point. The high priest, our high priest is better than the Levitical high priest. Of what is being said, again, that's referring back to chapter 7, in which Melchizedek and Jesus, who's like Melchizedek, they are exalted over Aaron and over the law. As Kistemacher, the commentator, says, Hebrew 8 is really an extended commentary on a particular verse, Hebrews 7.22, which says this, So Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. He's a better high priest. We've been talking about that in the last several chapters, but now he is the guarantee of a better covenant. The covenant is better. The covenant of which he is the high priest is better than the covenant of which Aaron of the law of Moses is the high priest. Gill says it's a little bit less particular in Hebrews 7.22 that the author is referring to when he says what is being said. He refers it back to the previous three chapters, which is comparison, comparing Jesus and Melchizedek. Whatever it is, we see that it's a comparison between the old and the new. So the main point is this. We have this kind of high priest, referring back to Hebrews 7.26, such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, all of which, of course, Jesus was. That verse 7.26 ties us directly to Hebrews 8.1, that such, such a high priest. We have this kind of high priest, such a high priest, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, Aaron and his successors were also holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted from heavens, but in a much lesser degree than Jesus. Aaron was holy, blameless, and pure, but only ritually, only according to the laws of the Levitical cultus, if you will. But he was not actually holy, blameless, and pure because he was a sinner. Aaron was set apart from sinners as Jesus was, but Jesus was set apart from sinners because he participated not in their sin, but Aaron was a sinner. Jesus was actually set apart from the son of sinners. Aaron only ritually, Levitically, was set apart from sinners. And Aaron was exalted above the heavens only in the eyes of his fellow Jews, but Jesus was actually exalted above the heavens where he rose again to sit at the right hand of God the Father. So that's the kind of high priest we got. Holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He's a priest like Bekizeldek, just to rehash a little bit the previous chapters. Bekizeldek was a king of righteousness. Jesus is a king of righteousness. Bekizeldek was a prince of Salem, prince of peace. Well, Jesus is the prince of peace. Bekizeldek received tithes from Abraham and also from Levi because Levi was in Abraham's loins. So Bekizeldek is greater than Aaron because the greater receives priest from the lesser. So... Jesus is a greater high priest than Aaron was. Melchizedek gave a blessing to Abraham, who's the father of all believers. Well, Jesus gives his blessings to Abraham, the father of all believers. But Melchizedek's priesthood was forever because he had no genealogy. Likewise, Jesus' priesthood is forever because he has no genealogy. All right, that's a rehash. Shows that Jesus himself is superior as a high priest. And because he's superior, his covenant that he administers is superior to the new covenant. Now this high priest that Jesus is sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The right hand is the position of power and influence next to a king. That's a metaphor that's used constantly in the scriptures. That's where Jesus is. And you notice he sat down. That shows that Jesus has finished his work according to John Gill. As opposed to the Levitical priest, i.e. the high priest, who stood 
And because they stood when they did the work and they did not sit, John Gill says that shows that their work was not finished. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown backing that up. The Levitical high priest, even when they entered the holiest place once a year, and again, talking about the high priest, Aaron. Levitical, it sounds like Levitical priest is referring to common priest, but he's talking about the high priest that's established by the Levitical law. Even when they entered the holiest place once a year, only stood for a brief space before the symbol of God's throne. But Jesus sits on the throne of the divine majesty in the heaven itself and this forever. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, now Hebrews 10 actually expresses that explicitly. Hebrews 10 verses 11 and 12, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's finished. His priestly work is done. He's forgiven our sins. He's taken them away. He's abolished them. He's abrogated them. He's covered them. He's atoned for them. It's over. Can't say that about Aaron. He has to do it every year, over and over again. He can't sit down. He's got to work forever trying to take care of our sins. Levitical priest, i.e. the high priest, he left the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement when he finished making his sacrifices. Not so Jesus. He didn't leave the Holy of Holies. He sat down in the Holy of Holies with God at his right hand. And notice that our high priest Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens as opposed to Aaron who sat down on the earth, once again, showing the superiority of Jesus to Aaron. And once again, we ask the question, or the author of the Hebrew question, Hebrew, the author of the book of Hebrews asked the Hebrew believers, why do you guys want to go back to Judaism when your high priest is so pitiful compared to, when, when the Jewish high priest is so pitiful compared to your Jesus, the high priest that you've got? Why would you want to go back to that? Hebrews verse, chapter 8, verse 2. This high priest is a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. Now, what is this sanctuary? Where are some options? It could be heaven, the throne room of God in heaven, the sanctuary where God lives in heaven. The antitype of the Holy of Holies, as John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest, the context favors this, in my view, because in verse 1 we read this, Jesus who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so in verse 2, when it says a ministry of the sanctuary, right after the mention of heavens, that makes you think of the heavenly sanctuary. So I think that's what it is. Some people say it could be the church because the church is where Jesus lives too and ministers. Or it could be the church on earth and in heaven too, believers living and departed. I just think it's easier to say he's talking about the sanctuary in heaven. And the true tabernacle is just in apposition with sanctuary, the true tabernacle is in heaven also. Of course, it could be the church on earth. It could be the church on earth and in heaven too. But I believe it's talking about the heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle where God lives truly, not typically. He lives antitypically there, not typically. He typically lived in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, but now in the true tabernacle, he lives antitypically. Actually, this is the shadow, the type is the, excuse me, this is the substance. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was the type, was the shadow, but the fulfillment of that shadow is the true tabernacle in heaven. Now, when the author says it's a true tabernacle, he could mean it's archetypical or archetypal, I guess you'd say. Because heaven was the pattern for the tabernacle when it was built. So you could say heaven was before that tabernacle in uh, the directions for which were given on Mount Sinai. Or you could say the tabernacle in heaven, the true tabernacle, tabernacle is antitypical in the sense that it, the heaven was symbolized by the tabernacle that was already on earth and it fulfilled that symbol. Either way, the true tabernacle is better than the typical tabernacle. The true tabernacle in heaven is the real one. It's the real one as opposed to what is not real. This, it's the substance as opposed to the shadow, the shadow being in the desert around Mount Sinai. This true tabernacle was set up by the Lord and not man. What does that refer to? Man, well, Moses set up the tabernacle in the wilderness. At least he superintended the construction of the tabernacle. And so once again, you have a contrast. God set up a tabernacle and Moses set up a tabernacle. Well, it says the Lord. I'm, well, that might be Jesus, not God the Father. So... Not really sure what that is, what, what, who that Lord refers to, but the point is, is that whether it's God the Father or God the Son, it was God who set up the tabernacle that's the real one. The one that was set up in the desert was just set up by a mere man. So which one's better? You want to go back to Moses, Hebrew Christians? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3, For every high priest is anointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. 
when he says for every priest or because every high priest is appointed. John Gill says the author is now introducing the reason why we call Jesus the minister of the sanctuary. In verse 2, says Jesus was the minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle in heaven. Jesus was the minister of it. He was the priest of it. Because, verse 3, every high priest is in order to offer gifts and sacrifices. In other words, because Jesus is the minister of the heavenly sanctuary, it's because he was appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Now the question, of course, arises, what are those gifts and sacrifices? At the end of verse 3, it says, Therefore it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Jesus had to have something to offer. If he's going to be a high priest, priest have something to offer. Because in the Old Testament, gifts and sacrifices were offered. Now, there's a question in the Old Testament. Is a gift separate from a sacrifice, or is it just, are those two words just in apposition to one another and referring to the same thing? I found a quote from Ellicott on Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, that distinguishes gifts and sacrifices, talking about in the Old Testament. Quote, the form of the gifts is in itself perfectly general, but when thus contrasted with sacrifices, it denotes the unbloody offerings of the law. On the Day of Atonement, which as we shall see is almost always in the writer's thoughts as he refers to the functions of the high priest, the offerings would consist of the incense and of the meat, the meal offerings. The old-fashioned English is meat, but is meal, grain offerings. Incense and meal, grain offerings connected with the burnt sacrifices for the day. Those would be the animal sacrifices. On, the, on that day, all offerings, as well as all sacrifices, all gifts, in other words, as well as all sacrifices, all gifts, for example, the grain offerings and the incense, that would be the gifts and the sacrifices would be the animal. For example, Aaron had to sacrifice a bull for himself and for the sins of himself and of his people, his household, and also the whole nation. That would be a bloody sacrifice, a sacrifice, and the offerings of the gifts would be the incense and the grain offerings. Well, that makes sense. We still got, that's the Old Testament. Now, that's the type. How about the, that's the shadow. How about the reality, the fulfillment, the substance, the antitype? How did Jesus offer a gift and sacrifice? Well, before we get to that, let me let me read Hebrews 5, 1. For every high priest taken from men is appointed in service to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So you see the high priest Aaron had to offer gifts, incense, meal offerings, and sacrifices, sacrifice the bull for sins. All right, so if the high priest did that under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, therefore Jesus had to do, he had to offer gifts and sacrifices in the new covenant. So what gifts and sacrifices did he give? The answer is very simple. He offered up himself. Hebrews 7.27 says this, He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. So there's his gift and sacrifices all rolled up in one thing, his body that he sacrificed to be crucified on the cross. Jameson Fawcett said, is, Jameson Fawcett Brown says it's a little bit more precise than that it's his own blood that he offered up on the cross. Well, I, that's, get, that's picky if you ask me, his blood, his life, himself. That was the gift and sacrifice he offered. So a high priest Aaron, he got a bull to offer, but Jesus offered himself. Once again, showing that Jesus is a superior high priest to a mere mortal high priest who has to offer a bull. Jesus offered his own life. We go to verse 4, Hebrews 8. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. Now, if he, that's referring to Jesus, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Why? Because he was from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi, so therefore in the family of Aaron, so therefore he was not qualified to be a priest on earth. Now, some Socinian heretics, these are the rationalist heretics, what were they, third century? I forgot, early in the church history. Socinians, they were rationalists, they were the liberals of their day. They said that if this verse means that Jesus did not offer a sacrifice of himself on the cross, now if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, so when he was on earth, he wasn't a priest. He didn't offer his blood sacrifice. That, of course, is absolute nonsense. I'm sorry I even brought it up. It's not worth refuting. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. The Greeks, according to Jameson, Foss, and Brown, reads like this. He would not even be a priest. He would not even attain to the lowly status of an Aaronic priest, a Levitical priest. And this shows how distinct Jesus' heavenly priesthood is from the earthly priesthood. Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't even qualify to be an earthly priest because they're so different. That priesthood is solely different. It has nothing to do with him. It's over with, folks. So Jesus' ministry must be in heaven, not on earth. And that's the minute, that's our high priest now, in heaven. And it's separate from the old covenant. So let's quit going back to the law, Hebrew Christians, and modern American day Christians, I might add. 
Notice that the present tense is used of the verb are. He wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. Are offering, that means they're going on now. The present tense here shows that this book of Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, as Adam Clark correctly points out. The author says in verse 4, there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. Who are the those? That would be the Levitical priest, the priest of the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron. And when he says offering the gifts, that's short for gifts and sacrifices. Some people actually start splitting hairs here and say that since the author of the book of Hebrews didn't mention sacrifices here, he just mentions gifts that were offered by the, by the priest, the Old Testament priest, only gifts, but sacrifices weren't offered. Therefore, since sacrifices are not included, the temple is already destroyed. Again, that ain't worth answering. That's foolishness. He just used gifts as short for gifts and sacrifices, which were going on right now since there are those offering the gifts, implied and sacrifices prescribed by the law. Hebrews 8 verse 5, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Now these it's talking about all the stuff that were, taught, were, were mentioned before in the previous verses. The priesthood, for example, was a type and a shadow. The sanctuary, the heavenly temple, or the, excuse me, the sanctuary and the tabernacle, those were types of what comes later. So these, the, the sanctuary and the tabernacle serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The true tabernacle is in heaven. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. Now, Moses didn't actually build the tabernacle, but it was under his jurisdiction that he built the tabernacle. He didn't physically build it, but he directed the people who did physically build it. And Moses was warned when he was doing that, hey, you need to be careful. Exodus 25, 40, be careful to make them, that means the things of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, be careful to make them according to the pattern you have been shown on the mountain. And the mountain, of course, is Mount Sinai. God told him exactly how to make that tabernacle. And, and if you read the details in Exodus, the details are incredibly precise. It's like a blueprint. Reminded me of an architect's blueprint on a construction site. Why did God tell Moses to build it just like that? Moses had to be careful because his tabernacle for generations was to be the pattern of heaven. It was to be the object lesson that taught God's people this is what heaven's going to be like. So yeah, he had to be careful. The, the author of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 5 says, For God said, whenever you hear that, God said, he's talking about an Old Testament scripture, which gives the words of God. God says it, the scripture says it, there's no distinction. This is for all you liberals who want to trash the authority of the scripture. Verse 6, Hebrews 8, But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. He has now attained a superior ministry. Jesus has now means having died on the cross. Now the cross having been accomplished. He's become a mediator of a better covenant. The Greek word for mediator is a common business term for a go-between or a middleman. Jesus was the middleman between God and man. He was the middleman of a better covenant. That's what he calls the new covenant. In fact, in Hebrews 8, we'll see in just a minute, it's called the new covenant. And also, it's called the new covenant in Luke when he was doing the the communion. He called it the new covenant. Now the new covenant is a superior to the old Sinai covenant, the old Mosaic covenant, just as much as Jesus is superior to the old covenant priest. Here's a scripture, 2 Corinthians 3.10. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. What had been glorious, that's the old covenant, it's not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. Just like if you have a flashlight, yeah, that's bright. Shine it in your eyes. Ooh, that's bright. But then you put it out in the sunshine, also, and you can't even see the flashlight anymore. So that's kind of what the old covenant was like compared to the better covenant, the new covenant. The new covenant is, is between God and his people with Jesus as the middleman. The old covenant was between God and his people with the Levitical high priest as the middleman. The ironic high priest is the middleman. What would you rather have, Hebrew Christians? Now, we have this word covenant. The word covenant shows up a lot in the book of Hebrews. And there's a lots of theological ink spilled on this word covenant. It's the Afeke in the Greek. I just looked at an article that had Herman Rudabas, Louis Burkhoff quoted in it, as well as Gerhardus Voss, another article I read by Gerhardus Voss, 
And these theologians go on and on and on about this. And the reason is it's a translation problem because you got berit, berit in the Old Testament Hebrew, does that which generally means a one-sided disposition of something like a will where the, there's no two parties agreeing to something. And then you get to you translate that as it, could you either translate it in the Greek as suntheke or diatheke. Suntheke means uh, an agreement with two equal parties. Diatheke can mean that, but it generally has the idea of a disposition from one party to the next. And so the idea is is that even though this is a covenant between two people, it's a it's a covenant that between a superior party and an inferior party, God being the superior party and us being the inferior party. And I think that's generally good enough to get us by here. But I will say that the translations, oh my gosh, they split all over the place on how to translate diatheke. I mean, there's one place in, in the last chapter of Hebrews where, where is that verse? I don't have it right in front of me. But it's obviously it's got to be will, at least I thought, because it says that a, a diatheke is not in effect until the, until the person making the DFAK dies. Well, that sounds like a will. And most translations, translations translate it as will. However, I found the New American Standard and Young's Literal and J.P. Green's Literal translated it as covenant. And I could go on and on and on about this. This is something for people who want to get a Ph.D. in New Testament studies could study. It's over my head. This is enough for me. DFAK is a covenant between God and his people, but it's a one-sided covenant. That'll do good for a rough approximation of what this means, covenant. And, of course, you can get into conditional covenants and unconditional covenants and the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Noahic covenant and the Davidic covenant. You can get into all that, but we're not going to. We're just going to talk about the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant, Jesus' covenant, which was legally enacted on better promises. Well, what better promises was the new covenant enacted upon? Hebrews 7.11 if then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? In other words, the new covenant promises perfection, completion. The new covenant can bring the believer from a state of sinfulness to a state of glorification. But the Old Testament, the Old Covenant can't do that. It can't bring us to maturity, to perfection. It can only point out that, they were, that we are miserable rotten, filthy sinners, which is nice, but that doesn't get you all the way home. Hebrews seven eighteen through 19, so the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. That's the law of Moses, for the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's another way the new covenant is a superior covenant. We can draw near to God under the new covenant. We can't do that under the old covenant. The old covenant, if you read the Old Testament, it's all about staying away from God. Separation. Separation is what holiness means, and it's all about holiness. Read the book of Leviticus. It's about holiness. Stay away from God. You just ate some shrimp. Stay away from God. You just buried somebody at a funeral. But the new covenant says we can draw near to God. It's not staying away from God. Hebrews seven twenty-two through 24. So Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, now, many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office, but because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. That's another way the covenant is better. The high priest of that new covenant lasts forever. So let's summarize here verse 6. How is Jesus, how is the new covenant a better covenant than the old covenant? Well, first, the new covenant has a sinless high priest. The old covenant has a sinful high priest. The new covenant has an eternal high priest. The Old Covenant has a high priest who dies, who's mortal. Third reason, the New Covenant is better. The New Covenant has a high priest who offers himself instead of animals. The Old Covenant has to offer animals. Fourth reason, the New Covenant is better. The New Covenant has a high priest who can make someone perfect, can make perfect those who draw near to him. Old Covenant can't do that. All four of those were from Steve Ackerson. Nice summary by my friend Steve. Adam Clark adds another reason the high priest is better, because the high priest is in heaven under the new covenant, but under the old covenant, the high priest is on earth. Now we move on to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. All right, in this verse we see the first covenant reference. What's the first covenant? That's the Mosaic covenant made at Mount Sinai, of course. If it had been faultless, well, how was the first old covenant with fault? That's a rhetorical question, of course. And the assumption is that there was a fault with the first covenant. What was wrong with it? 
Well, let's read some scriptures that describe some faults with the Old Covenant. Hebrews 7.11, If the imperfection came through the, through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? So there we have perfection. The Old Covenant could not perfect the worshiper. Hebrews 7.18-19, So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. That's saying the same thing. The law can perfect nothing because it's weak. It's unprofitable. It does not bring us to perfection. It does not save us. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's the new covenant, of course. Romans 8, 3 through 4, what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh. That means in your weak human flesh, you cannot keep the law. That's why the law is limited, because nobody can keep it. Because there's no power given you in order to keep the law. That comes with the Holy Spirit, and the law doesn't give you the Holy Spirit. All right, so the law does not bring perfection. It's limited. It works by the flesh, and the flesh is not strong enough to take away sin. The old covenant was faulty because it could not take away the sin of anyone. It could only point out the sin of those who failed in their flesh to keep the law. And then it condemned those who failed to keep the law. It condemned those to judgment. The law was not morally imperfect. Of course not. It was holy. But it was imperfect in the sense that it could not bring the worshiper to perfection. Now, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. In other words, Jesus would not have been needed if Moses had done the job, but Moses didn't do the job. There would have been no occasion for a second one, as translated by the NIV. No place would have been sought for another. And this makes it look like the Jews were actually seeking for a better covenant, as Steve Ackerson points out. People are looking for a new covenant, and that might be well true, because Jeremiah prophesied of a new covenant, and as we will see when we get there in just a few verses, next verse actually, Jeremiah was looking for a new covenant that was a lot better than the covenant that he was operating under. Now this idea that there would have been no occasion for a second one if the first one had been per perfect is basically expressed in Hebrews 7.11. If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? There's no need for Jesus if Moses does the job. So, Hebrew Christians thinking about backsliding back to Judaism, why are you going back to Moses? They're obviously... Moses obviously is not going to help you because we had to have another mediator named Jesus come, and now you're walking out on him. That makes no sense. Verse 8, but finding fault with his people, he, God, says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, of course, this is the quotation from Jeremiah. In fact, verses 8 through 12 that we're going to take up now in Hebrews 8 is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Pretty straight quotation. Now, of course, Jeremiah is talking about a new covenant made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's using Old Testament terminology, but of course, the new covenant was going to be made with the church. So the church is the new Israel, the house of Judah, the house of Israel. That's the, the new Israel is the church. But Jeremiah used Old Testament terms to express it. And this, is, of course, is one of the most embarrassing verses for Dispensationalism, dispensationalism, because dispensationalism says that the prophets were prophesying of an Old Testament, excuse me, of a millennial kingdom, not of the church. And here we have Jeremiah prophesying directly of the church, and he's using Old Testament terminology, which shows that you can't be too literal about it. We have fulfillment theology here. Israel and Judah replaced by the church. I love using that word replaced because it drives dispensationalists crazy. They use it pejoratively. There's nothing wrong with replacement theology, except it's not really replacement theology, is it? It's fulfillment theology. So we need to remember Hebrews 8.8. 8. This is a good one. The author says that God found fault with his people. What fault? Well, they sinned. They were sinners. And, of course, they sinned big time. But everybody sinned. So you're not going to get justified by keeping the Old Testament law because it will not make you righteous. So we need a new covenant. Now, the, another time that I think, I think it's one of the only other times that the new covenant is mentioned is in Luke 22.20. 20. At the Lord's Supper. In the same way, he, Jesus, also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Jesus' blood. It is shed for you. The new covenant. So the new covenant was instituted at the Lord's Supper, the, Latin, the first Lord's Supper, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now I'm going to read the whole prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, because this is a key prophecy. There's only one phrase in here which is translated a little bit differently when it's quoted by the author of Hebrews. Here's what Jeremiah, Jeremiah said. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
Of course, that's fulfilled in the church. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. In other words, the new covenant will not be like the old covenant. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke even though I had married them. And of course, Israel broke the Mosaic law every chance they got. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching. He's talking about the new covenant now. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. And there, that last phrase there is why the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant, because the new covenant can expunge your sin. The old covenant cannot. The only part there that's not quoted is in verse Jeremiah 31, 32, a covenant they broke, even though I had married them, is not in, the, in, in Hebrews. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, when he says, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Jeremiah is writing in early 600s or so B.C. He was predicting the crash of Israel in 586 B.C. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel was gone in 722, so he can't be literally talking about the northern kingdom of Israel when he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, because Israel is gone. He's speaking symbolically of the church here. Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., the northern Israel. The symbolism, it was symbolism referring to the Hebrew people in general. That's what, how Jeremiah quoted it. He's quoting to the Jews in general, house of Israel, house of Judah. He's talking about Jews. But when the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah, the author of Hebrews is referring to new covenant Christians, which would include believing Gentiles as well as Jews. So here's some scripture showing that the house of Israel includes ethnic Jews. Matthew 15:24. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the term house of Israel also includes, also can refer to believing Jews and believing Gentiles. House of Israel. Romans 1:16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's powerful salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. Romans 4, 9 through 12, is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? That would be the Gentiles. For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. So in other words, circumcision, which is a symbol of the law, had nothing to do with Abraham's salvation. His faith had everything to do with it, however. And he, uh, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised. That would be us Gentiles. So that righteousness may, righteousness may be credited to them also, to Gentiles as well as Jews. And he became the father of the circumcised, the father of the Jews, who are not only circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. So in that passage there, we see that Abraham is the father of Gentile believers and also Jewish believers who are circumcised but also believe because they have the faith of Abraham. And Paul said in Galatians 3, 7, those who have faith are Abraham's sons. And that would include Gentiles. Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise you belong to Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek. You're a, you are a believer. You are in the covenant. You, are, you have received the promise of Abraham. You are in the new covenant. You are in the house of Israel and the new Israel. Now, it was fitting. Well, first of all, let's say this. The new covenant is for the spiritual lineage of Abraham, not for the biological lineage of Abraham. That's a short way of saying it. The new covenant is for everybody that believes, Gentiles as well as Jews. Now, it was fitting for the author of Hebrews to bring out the literal Hebrew roots of the New Covenant because he was writing to Hebrew Christians. So he was talking about, Jeremiah was saying that Jews were going to have a New Covenant given to them. Yeah, Jews were going to believe. They were going to have a chance to believe in Jesus. But that was going to be expanded with spiritual Jews, those who had the faith of Abraham even though uncircumcised. Now, this New Covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, Judah was the southern kingdom of the Jews after the split that occurred when Solomon died. Ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. but And I've already mentioned this. I'll mention it again. Note the problem for hyper-literalists. The new covenant is obviously with the church. This is the new covenant in my blood, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah. Whoa, wait a minute. The house of Judah? You see now, it's not the nation of Israel or the 
tribes of Judah that the new covenant is made with. It's made with the church. So therefore, the church replaces Israel slash Judah. Or shall we say less pejoratively, the church fulfills the old Israel and the old Judah. It's the new Israel. Now, some say this phraseology is a promise for the modern-day conversion of the Jews because it's with a house of Israel and a house of Judah. Therefore, Jews are going to get converted. I don't know. I hope so. But there is no proof that there's going to be a huge last-minute Romans 11 conversion of the Jews. It's a partial hardening, but that's not the same thing as a temporary hardening when all of a sudden the Jews are going to come in all at once. A lot of people say that. I hope it's true, but you can't prove it from the Scripture. Not in my humble opinion. That both Israel and Judah were exiled, Israel in 722 B.C. and Judah in 586 B.C., Israel to the Assyrians and Judah to the Babylonians, but both of them would be brought out of exile. How? Symbolically in the Church of Jesus Christ. The Assyrians were never physically brought back, and the, the Judeans were brought back. They did, they did come back physically out of exile. But how everybody's going to be brought out of their exile is when they end up believing in Jesus, and they're in the church of Jesus Christ. We go to Hebrews 8, verse 9. This new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hands to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I disregarded them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. All right, the covenant that he made with the ancestors, of course, is the old covenant on Mount Sinai. It's called the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, the Old Covenant. In fact, that's why we get the first name for the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, Testament and Covenant, or similar words. He says, I took them by their hands and led them out of Egypt. John Gill says this is to show their weakness in getting themselves out of Egypt. They had to be taken by the hand like little children. They were weak in keeping the law. This shows God's kindness to them in so doing by leading them out of the hands because they were weak, they were pitiful, they were former slaves. And God led them like a father leads a little ch child by the hand. Now, in Hebrews 8, 9, the author says, I, the Lord, disregarded them. Now, in Jeremiah says, though I had married them, says the Lord. <laughs> but the author of Hebrews says, I disregarded them. Now, that sets up a very complicated textual problem here. Now, there's a couple of options to account for the discrepancy. One option is to say that the author of Hebrews, Hebrews quoted the Septuagint text while Jeremiah is quoted in the Masoretic text, but Adam Clark disputes that. Some people say it's a translation problem like Clark, like Adam Clark. He says that the Hebrew word for married can be translated disregard. So instead of saying, though I married them... You translate it as, I disregarded them. Well, we'll leave that for the textual scholars. I don't think it really matters to me too much, assuming it means disregarded, as the Homo Christian Study Bible has it. The reason that God, the Lord, Yahweh, disregarded the children of Israel is because they sinned like crazy, because they did not continue in my covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, remember, was conditional. You keep this covenant, good things will happen. You don't keep it, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, curses will be upon your head. And the fleas of a thousand hemorrhoids, the the a thousand fleas will inherit, will infect your hemorrhoids forever, or something. I don't. Maybe that's not in the in the Deuteronomy law. I think that's a Muslim curse. But this, but the curses are very similar to that. All kinds of boils and all kinds of horrible things happening to you if you disregard the law. The law was very good at punishing sin and showing you that you were a sinner. It just wasn't very good at getting you saved. We go to verse ten in Hebrews eight. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Again, this is with the house of Israel, but it's really the church because it's obviously talking about the new covenant church. It's not talking about any kind of covenant with the millennial kingdom, millennial Israel, contra the dispensationalists. I, I would love to know how dispensationalists explain this. I'm sure they've got a way. I'm not familiar with it yet. The but there... But this is the covenant that I will make. This is opposed to God disregarding the disobedient people under the old covenant. I'm going to disregard you people who disobey, but this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So that's the good news. I'm going to disregard you disobedient old people under the old covenant, but I'm going to make a new covenant. And it's going to be a good one. The house of Israel, of course, is the spiritual Israel, the church. Jeremiah prophesizes using terms he was familiar with. He did not know about the church yet, but... If he could look into the future, he would see the fulfillment was in the church. The fulfillment was not in a national Israel. Today's national Israel is not living under the new covenant. In fact, they're very much opposed to it. It is a secular nation. The 1948 Israel 
over which now Menachem Begin rules, and he's, I like him, he's a good prime minister, but he ain't a Christian, and the nation's not a Christian. So this is talking about the church that's going to be made with this new covenant. After those days, that means the days when the old covenant was in effect, before the Messiah had come, after those days, when are going to have a new covenant with the house of Israel. And in this new covenant, I, will, I, God, will put my laws into their minds, into the spiritual Israelites' minds, Christians' minds. Now, do you notice it's my laws? My is Jesus who's talking here. Well, actually, that could be God the Father. But when God the Father puts my laws into the Christians' minds, it's not the laws of Moses, it's the laws of God. And, of course, the laws of God in the New Testament are the laws of Christ, or the law of Christ. As Steve Agerson so aptly says, our starting point for ethics should be the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. Hear, hear. This, of course, is New Covenant theology as opposed to Covenant theology. Notice not only is it not the law of Moses that God will put in their minds, he's not going to put the natural law, the moral law, the Romans 2 law. He's not going to put that into the hearts of the spiritual Israel, the house of Israel, the new Israel, because they've already got that. In fact, every human being on earth has got that. Everybody's got a conscience whether they're saved or not. So this is talking about the laws of God as expressed through the laws of Christ. Now, these laws are said to be written in the New Covenant on the minds and hearts of the believer. What does that mean? It means that now the believer has a force which gives internal voluntary compliance with Christ's laws, not a forced involuntary external compliance based on fear. That's what law does. You do this, I'm going to strike you dead. But when you got Jesus' law written on your hearts, you do good because you want to do good, and you shun evil because you want to shun evil. It's not so hard when it's internal, when you internalize it. And that's what the new covenant is like compared to the old covenant. Here's what John Gill says about that. Quote, intends a filling the soul with love and affection to them so that it regards them singly and heartily and a powerful inclination of the heart to be subject to them, talking about being subject to the laws of God, through the efficacious grace of God in which is done not with the ink of nature's power, but with the spirit of the living God. In other words, I can write down, this is what's going to happen to you if you do these drugs. Your, your guts are going to rot out. You're going to be addicted and your life will be ruined. Well, you can do that. Or you can just say, why would I want to do drugs? I hate the thought of that. Much better when the law is internal. And by the way, when it says on their minds and on their hearts, that's just doubling down and saying the same thing. There's no distinction here between minds and hearts. That's Hebrew parallelism, with you, if you want, if you will. Minds and hearts are in opposition to one another. Here's another scripture that expresses this idea of laws being written on the heart. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. It is clear that you are Christ's letter produced by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. So God took his Holy Spirit and he wrote it on the hearts of the Corinthians, in their hearts, not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. So God wrote that law on their hearts. So now it's internalized. The Corinthians are not going to sin because they don't want to sin. Not because there's a law out there written on a tablet that says we're going to bash you over the head with this law if you break it. Verse 10 of Hebrews 8 finishes off this way, I will be their God and they will be my people. So just summarize, there are two advantages to the new covenant. Number one, the laws will be internal to us, as I just said. They will be the wellspring of our motivation as, to, as opposed to some terrible external thing which threatens us. All right, that's the first advantage. The second advantage to the new covenant is that God will have a personal relationship with his people. I will be their God, their God. The Old Covenant under Moses doesn't give you that personal relationship. Now, I've got an interesting theological question. What about David? Didn't he have a personal relationship with God, even though he was under the law? Well, this is how I would answer that. I would say, well, you can live under the law, but your personal relationship with the Lord doesn't come with religiously following the law of Moses. It comes from having the faith of Abraham and believing God and praying to him that way. I don't think the law gets you close to God. The New Covenant allows you to know God. I will be their God. Actually, it says... Somewhere in here it says that God will know his people. I'm going to find it in just a minute. Oh, there it is, the very next verse. Hebrews 8:11. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. So there you go. Internal laws written on your hearts, the law of Christ stamped on your, in your minds and your hearts. Advantage number one. And the second is, advantage is that you will know God. From the least to the greatest of them, those spiritual Israelites in the New Covenant Church will know God. 
Now, each person will not teach his fellow citizen under the new covenant. That's a little bit confusing because, after all, we have teaching under the new covenant. We have public instruction in the faith, so that can't be what it means. We have private instruction of the saints one to another. That can't be what it means. Well, so here's some options as to what the author meant. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen. Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown suggest this means each person will not teach his fellow citizen without the Holy Spirit, like happened under the first covenant. Teaching was done without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Here's a quote from Clark. Under the old covenant, the priest's lips were to keep knowledge, and in his mouth, the people were to seek the law. Under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit teaches every believer. So in other words, the priest taught, but it was more of a mechanical rote teaching, not a Holy Spirit-inspired teaching. That's Clark's view. Here's another view. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen how to become saved. They don't need to teach each other how to become saved because they're under the new covenant. They already know. I would suppose this option means that under the old covenant, you had to teach, the, the priest had to teach the people, this is how you're going to get saved, get saved from all your sin. You've got to keep all these blood sacrifices. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen, option number three. They're not going to teach it like it was done in the old covenant. It's going to be new teaching. How it was done back in the old covenant, according to Adam Clark, is they only worshiped in the tabernacle, lived in the temple. That's the only time that you had teaching. People rarely went in there except on feast days. And actually, there was no teaching. But there was the types. You'd see the sacrifices and the, and the feast and so forth. That's all the teaching there was. Now, that was just when you had the temple. Afterwards, they built the synagogue, especially after the exile to Babylonian. But the law and the prophets were merely read in these synagogues. There was no systematic teaching. That's not so good. And so it could be the author is saying, we're not going to have a situation like that where there's no teaching. We're not going to have a situation like that in the Old Covenant where there is teaching there is ineffective, ineffectual teaching because it's just merely reading the law and the prophets. But in the New Covenant, we're going to have Christian teaching with Christian teachers. Here's another option. It could be in the Old Covenant, there were schools of prophets and there was rabbinical schools, but they only taught select people, only a very, very, very small sliver of the population. And so when the author of Hebrews in verse 11, chapter 8 says, each person will not, te each person will not teach his fellow citizen, he means... We're not going to teach you like a rabbi or a, or a prophet in the school of the prophets. We're not going to teach you how, you how you get to know this mysterious God. No, everybody's going to be saying, hey, I know you know Jesus, and I know Jesus, and let's take it from there. And let's base our teaching on that. That's a little bit obscure, what the author means here. But obviously the teaching is going to be better in the, in the New Covenant than the Old. And the old, they're struggling. How do we know the Lord? How do we know the Lord? And by the way, that word know is from gnosko, which means to know not about the Lord, but it means to personally know somebody, to know somebody as a friend, as a, someone you love, as a companion, a fellow partaker of life, to know somebody personally. Well, if you're in the old covenant, you're going to have to have somebody teach you how to do that with God, but not in the new covenant because everybody's already going to know how to do that. From the least to the greatest of them, that means could be from the babes in Christ to the to the apostles, to the people who to have received revelation, or it could be from the least socio-economically poor people to the greatest of them, big shot nobles or such. I tend to think that's probably what he's talking about. It doesn't matter what your social status is; you're gonna know the Lord. You can be a slave or you can be a king. It doesn't matter. You're gonna know the Lord. Now, this fact that you're going to know the Lord shows that this, that this new covenant has nothing to do with a secular kingdom. Like in 1948, like with Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel, no. Because not everyone in a secular kingdom knows the Lord. He's talking about knowing the Lord. So this is a personal thing. The old covenant was a national covenant with the nation of Israel. The new covenant is personal. You know the Lord. You're not going to know the Lord in a national covenant. Not necessarily. But... The new covenant says, you're going to know Jesus. We go to verse 12 in Hebrews 8. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. That's not a national covenant. That's a personal covenant that takes away your sins. For I will be merciful. The old covenant could not forgive the people's sins, but the new covenant can. And I'll never will again remember their sins. Now, remember is not just an empty mental exercise of bringing something to mind. Remember is a concept that also carries with it the idea of doing something. For example, either to the advantage or disadvantage of the person being remembered, as F.F. Bruce says. For example, if I told you, please remember me in your will, that doesn't mean, hey, write me down, write my name down on a piece of paper so you can think about me when you 
adjust your will. No. And remember me in your will means give me something from your estate. So remember is more than just a mental exercise. In the new covenant, Jesus will never again remember their sins, and that means he will never remember their sins so he can punish them. He will never say, hmm, Dan tried to sin, so I'm going to lower the boom on him with punishment for his sins. That's over. That ain't going to happen because of Jesus' gracious blood sacrifice. Remember can be translated as reminder or remembrance. Hebrews 10.3 says, but in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That way it's just a mental image. Hebrews 10.3, that's in the Home of Christian Study Bible. Hebrews 10.3 in the KGV says, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And that's that's just a mental image. But but a lot of times, remember means, remember, remember me. Remember me means do something for me. Or God's going to remember you means he's going to punish you for what you did. Hebrews 8.13 will finish it up. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is old. And what is old and aging is about to disappear. Now, other translations for old, the NIV has obsolete. He has declared that the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is obsolete. It's old. Here's other ways we can say it. Uh, other, other ways we can contrast the old and the new covenant. The old is obsolete. The new is new. The old is inferior. The new is better. The old covenant is abrogated. The new covenant is valid. Now, notice that the old covenant, which is obsolete and aging, is about to disappear. The NIV has will soon disappear. What do you mean about to disappear? Well, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 had not happened yet because the book of Hebrews was written right before that in the 60s. Now, here's a question I thought of sometimes. Well, I thought that the old covenant disappeared when the veil in the temple was ripped at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Steve Atkinson answers that problem this way. He says the old covenant was obsolete at Jesus' death, but it hadn't disappeared yet. Because unsaved Jews kept sacrificing all sacrifices until AD 70. I've gotten to the point now where 80, 30, and 70, I'll run them all together as the first coming of Jesus. First advent of Jesus, stage one is stage two. Stage one is the birth of Jesus in the major in Bethlehem. And stage two is the coming of Jesus with his holy angels in judgment to wipe out the nation of Israel as prophesied in the Olivet Discourse and in the book of Revelation. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with Hebrews chapter 8, talking about the new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 9, first 10 verses, we'll look at the earthly holy place. That's the, not the holy of holies, but the holy place where the lampstand and the bread of the presence were. And we're going to look at that because those were types of the heavenly holy place. And we, and we got to know how the, ty- how the types worked before we can see how the antitypes fulfill those types. So we'll do that next audio, Hebrews 9, 1 through 10. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.